0: JJ Dino Might, Jared Johnson with Task Us, Outsourcing reimagined for the Innovation Age. You're listening to The Holes. It's RevOps with an Edge, baby. Come
1: on. Welcome to Sass Holes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are Revenue Ops with an Edge. Edge. You guys suck. Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please and subscribe. A lot of mistakes. To- Give or take. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter and donate to us on Patreon, you cheapskates. Today our guest is Jared Johnson. Jared is responsible for Taskus go-to-market strategy and execution across all of their client-facing functions. Jared leads the client organization at Taskus, including global marketing, sales, client services, account management, and global service offerings. He brings over 20 years of experience in enterprise technology, tech services, and business management. But before we get to Jared, we got a sponsor for the show, NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents of athletes, get a doodle of their noodle, which is a brain map before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare it to. You get a physical every year, right? Well, get a brain checkup before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare it to. Schedule an appointment now at NeuroNoodle.com. It takes only 20 minutes to get the data you need to ensure the quality of your athlete's future life. Carney.
2: Yeah,
0: Pete. KG. Yo. Let me tell you, before we get into it, that NeuroNoodle's yeah. is for real. My son, I did the baseline. He's 11, preseason, postseason. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. Check it out.
2: Oh. Wait, did you actually go to NeuroNoodle? did you
0: can you believe that that? yeah you did yeah
1: pete wait what where did you get it done Ed?
0: um my wife found them online and i think the physician was here in dallas
1: well hey we we thank you we thank you dallas is our favorite city (laughs) wow look at that carney yeah pete kg sup hear about that new restaurant called karma no there's no menu you get what you deserve (laughs) leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net shout outs baby what do you got kg
3: well i want to congratulate raj kapoor for starting as the co-founder and managing partner at uh climactic he's had an amazing career and was at lyft for a long time did they name a holiday after him? <laughs> but you I'm pumped. See, you should have added that in before. Yeah. She's asking a question. Joke. Continue. Instead of your dad joke, you know. Uh, hand, happy birthday to Candice Kramer. She's one of my favorites. She's uh, at uh, at ZipRecruiter. And uh, a congratulations to Zoe Klein. I used to work with her at uh, Upkeep, and she got promoted to uh, home advisor at Better. Congratulations, Zoe. Zoe, keep listening. Space. I got
2: three shout outs. One is Jason Schnack. He put up with me for almost three years at Flexera. I want to give him a shout out. My last day is today officially, but um, we said our goodbyes yesterday. Jim Ryan, the CEO of Flexera, who put up with me as well. Uh, That guy's an ace in the hole, one of the best CEOs out there in the SaaS space. And then a shout out to Brian Kelly, who the son of a bitch. Took a $15 million a year contract and left my uh, alma mater, University of Notre Dame. And I also need to give a shout out to Luke Fickle, who probably in the next couple of weeks will accept the job at Notre Dame. So those are uh, my shout outs.
1: Interesting. Don't you have a shout out for yourself?
2: I did that last week, but yeah, shout out for myself, sure.
1: Well, it's official now, right?
2: Well, I, tomorrow's my first day, but I'll be the VP of Revenue Ops at Um, people, AI, if you're not using people, AI, uh, and you're in the revenue app space, then you're not really,
1: you should. All right. Just Jackson. Happy birthday. Carney spoiled it for me.
2: I hired Justin Jackson at career builder as he was one of my, I think he was the fourth sales rep on that solo gig, niche sites.
1: (laughs) Are we allowed to say his name on the show?
2: I think so. We're just not allowed to have him on the show anymore.
1: Oh That's okay.
2: company's rules.
1: Oh, okay. Now KG, how'd you how do you know Jared? How'd you come to be with him?
3: Well, I uh I've been uh friends and fans of um uh Bryce Jasper exactly
0: uh get it confused a lot
3: yeah, exactly. Gosh, fans, uh, fans, and friends of uh, Bryce and Jasper uh, since, uh, gosh, 2010, 2011, and um, uh, watched them grow. They were a Santa Monica, ba- Santa Monica-based uh, company focused on um, business process outsourcing, and uh, I've been just watching their growth along with the, you know ZipRecruiter's growth and. Lo and behold, they went public earlier, earlier this year. And I thought, you know, it'd be awesome to have uh, to have Jasper on the, on the show. So I reached out and I said, hey, man, congratulations on your success. Let's get you, let's get you onto the sass holes and, uh, and some ta- talk some shop. And he said, the guy you have to talk to is Jared. Jared is the one ha- who has been mostly responsible for our success over the last several years. And I'd love to get him uh, on the, on the sass holes there. And so, uh, I I've, I've only met Jared once, but the, his accomplishments are absolutely storied, absolutely storied. So, uh, so we don't know each other that well, Jared. So I'm interested to, to hear your, uh, hear your story. You want to want to lay that on us?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, the guys, the co-founders, Bryce and Jasper started the business in 2008. It's been a wild ride. They are phenomenal. Uh, they didn't know what outsourcing was by the way, when they started, they were like, I'm a startup, you're a startup. Can I help you do some stuff? And so that was, that was sort of the, uh, that was the pitch for a long time. Um, my background, 10 years at IBM, um, learned a ton there, but I had to go somewhere smaller. I went to a company called ACS in Dallas. We grew that business to about 7 billion, sold it to Xerox. And then I was like, now I'm big again. I'm at Xerox. Um, so I stayed around until 2014 and, um, I decided I wanted to modernize kind of the way we, I was doing go-to-market stuff and sales. And I wanted to work with companies that were around 100 million trying to get to a billion. So in 2016, I landed at Taskus, started running sales. Uh, we were about 70 million at the time. Uh, the rest is kind of history when we went public this year.
2: So Task Us, so I dealt with them a long time ago, but they seem to be more focused on like like little tasks, is it turned into more of an outsourcing play? It's it's morphed probably since you've been there into more. Is it more of offshoring or outsourcing?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's outsourcing. Um, the business started as a virtual assistant business. So yeah,
2: exactly. That's what I remember. Yeah, so busy, uh,
0: like busy professionals like us might like outsource helping do our taxes or our vacation reservations or or something. Uh, as Bryce and Jasper will tell you, that is a really Crappy business model. <laughs> Turns out we are the most high maintenance um, clients in the world. And it was very kind of onesie Tuesday, but that's where the name TaskUs came came from taskus.com. Um, and what morphed was the guys were in the startup community with a bunch of other founders, and they were like, hey, we've got these phenomenal people in the Philippines. You know, well, oh, you, you want some help with that back office stuff? You want some help with answering customer emails? You want some help? We'll give you two people, we'll give you four people, we'll give you one person, whatever you need. And then uh, in 2013, they landed Uber. Uber said they would never outsource anything; they were all going to do it there in in California.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that makes no sense.
0: Yeah, and, and lo and behold, that, that that's when the business started to become a little bit more like enterprise. They, it was like, okay, we can do this for big big companies. And then a lot of those small companies took off, um, you know, food delivery businesses, yeah, uh, uh, you know, social media platforms. So just crazy market these guys were in. Uh, really fun market to sell into, by the way, which is part of the kind of secret sauce of our success the past five years.
2: I know I, PE I, firms use a lot of outsourcing, you know, like when they come into a company, they usually say, let's look at all your IT staff and say, what, how can we level up this staff and get the mundane out and into cheaper areas like Chesser and China and India and stuff like that. So I would imagine you guys work a lot with PE firms. Is that
0: uh, we, we, work a lot with, you know, management teams in growth stage companies, which happened to be backed by venture capital or PE for sure. Yeah. Um, but a lot of those companies went public. The interesting thing is, you know, I've been doing this for 20 plus years, tech services and services and forever. It was, you know, you were trying to take cost out, right? It was, I, you know, I do this thing in house today. It's a call center. It's a back office billing team. It's whatever, um, Trying to take cost out and optimize—that is really not what most of our clients are doing. Most of our clients are looking for scale. They need because they're growth stage businesses growing like crazy. They can't add staff fast enough, and they can't be experts in everything, right? So it's like, you know what? You guys do this digital customer support. I don't know how to set up a chat platform. I don't know how to make that work well, and I don't know how to hire, train, and manage 200 people, you know, to deal with that. Um, so it's really a fun place to partner with these clients because we're just, we're just coming in solving growth challenges. Very, very different than classic outsourcing, which is I'm taking us jobs and I'm moving them to China or moving them to India, or this is just different. We're, we're basically trying to help them take the non-core stuff, the stuff they don't need to be focused on Mm -hmm. that, do that really, really well for them and enable their growth and success. It's, and it's super fun.
2: Yeah. And I think I think that's what I meant. So I, I guess for the listeners out there, when a PE firm owns you, they're not going in there and saying, how can we save at the bottom line? What, what they're actually doing is saying, it makes no sense for us to pay for a developer from Georgia Tech to do some mundane tasks. Those people are going to leave. They're not going to be challenged. They're not coming here to do that type of stuff. So if we can move some of the mundane or non-core tasks out, we can have these very talented developers that you're hiring right out of school on the most critical things that you want them to. And it helps with turnover. It helps keeping them engaged. And then obviously at the end of the day helps with the bottom line, because if you reduce turnover and then you take some of those tasks off and move them, you know, outsourced somewhere else um, that usually makes it a little bit cheaper.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing I think, especially in today's environment is Mm -hmm. uh, talent's hard to get. And so being able to tap into global talent pools, whether it be simple work, you know, it's hard to compete, you know, with $20 an hour trying to get somebody to come into your office in Atlanta and do work, it's tough. Um, You know, so getting access to global talent, pools to do the work with the internet. You know, you can do this work anywhere, anytime of day in many cases. And then, you know, there are not enough engineers, developers, uh, SaaS platform managers, like, you know, in, in any one market. So getting access to, you know, global talent pools in Europe, Asia, et cetera, it can be an advantage.
2: I was going to say, have you noticed anything majorly different since uh, the H1V uh, the reduction of, you know, the ability to come work in the U.S., has that increased your, you know, COVID has, uh, I would imagine that has essentially increased the demand because we have a lack of talent in the first place. And now that we can't uh, hire people um, internationally here as much and as frequently, that's been reduced over the last couple of years. I would imagine that's increased the need for services like TaskUs.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly H-1B was a pretty uh, important tool for 10 plus years to get some global talent landed into the U.S. (sighs) to be able to fill jobs that maybe, you know, couldn't be filled. Oftentimes, there was still a labor arbitrage thing. Those people were here, but they were cheaper than, you know, certain domestic talent. What's interesting now with COVID is everybody's gotten wise to maybe I don't have to be sitting right next to this person to manage their work maybe I maybe I don't need a contractor in my office every day maybe I don't need to even have that h1b visa they're not going to be in my office anyway they're going to be working from home um I think people have been really surprised that you know certainly the the future of hybrid work as potential option for them um, and the ability to tap into global talent because it matters less where you physically are now with COVID. There's a bunch of other things to consider, taxes and uh, labor laws and all that kind of stuff. But it certainly, I think, has opened people's eyes to different ways of getting work done.
1: Uh, IBM, did you uh, make any elephants dance or that was uh, before your time uh, Louis Gerstner?
0: Uh, that was not before my time. Lou was there when I joined in 1999. Um, I was a, I was a young employee there when I read his book, "So Elephants Can Dance." I think that's the name of it. Right, um, phenomenal book. If you haven't read it, by the way, about Lou Gerstner's transformation of IBM when they were basically about to die, um, and I, you know, that I was that was the poster child for that transformation in some ways. Industry expertise. I became a kind of an expert in retail and consumer product brands and pivot towards services as well as products, software, and hardware. Um, Lou, I th- think, left in probably like the early 2000s. Sam Palmasano took over, kind of continued that run. Uh, I'm a big fan of that that company in general um, and the people there.
1: What did you notice in the in the culture for the transformation? I mean, you just got there, but did you notice anything i I'm sure you had some of the old guard uh, not buying in and the new guard coming in like yourself. Did you notice anything yeah. like that?
0: Well, I think, um, I think there was a pretty deep appreciation for the people who had jobs when the whole, when the, when the dust settled. Right. Um, and there were people with an undying devotion to the business and trying to save it. They, they loved that brand. They took great pride in working there um, and I'll say it was a great company culture, just in general, there are things underneath the surface from the hundred years of building the company, the respect for the individual. Um, I'll never forget the phrase, you don't work for your manager at IBM, your manager works for you. Um, like just like little things that, that the phrase think, um, it was so ingrained in the culture. Um, and then there were people who really understood adaptability, got to get global, um you know, the ivory tower was no more the days of big mahogany boardrooms and whatever. It became all flexi, you know, flexible uh, seating and check in, check out every day. And they dropped the real estate footprint by 60%. It was pretty, pretty fascinating.
1: The thing on culture, you you've built up companies from 70 million to, you know, 10x 700 million. What what did you notice in the culture and the growth? Because it, it dissipates a little bit, I would think.
0: Yeah, Taskus is a really interesting story um, from a culture perspective. I, I think it's, I, I believe it will be the most um, impactful company culture I, I ever work in. Uh, and as we get to more scale, it becomes in, in some ways even more so because we're just touching more lives and more clients, more people. Um, you know, what I would tell you is when I joined in 2016, it was hyper entrepreneurial and it was, it was hyper West Coast um, in the U.S., Um, I'll never forget walking into the interview and in Santa Monica and everybody's in shorts and t-shirts and flip flops. And there's like six dogs in the office. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the only adult here. Um, (laughs) it was a very scary moment. What, what came from that though, is when you start to scale and you have success and you have founders, there's something about founder led businesses. They just get the DNA of the business at a different level. And it's never really about financials for them. And so we, we worked really hard to scale this entrepreneurial people first culture, and then kind of systemize it. Like, what are the tenets of it that make, you know, that make it work? Um, Okay. It's people first. Okay. It's all, you know, be ridiculous. All ideas are welcome here. Okay. It's never take yourself too seriously, work hard, have fun, our core values, and like how we reinforced it every single day at scale, um, And it's been now, you know, it's amazing, 30, 32,000 employees, eight countries, 21 offices. Um, Just, uh, and I I think I can, I would tell you that the culture is stronger now in some ways than it's ever been. And it's really fun to bring new people in. Um, You
3: care to expand on that a little bit, Jared? Like, I I would love to dive deeper in how you actually systematize that, you know, but both Pete and I have, uh, scaled sales teams to hundreds of salespeople, um, over, over a period of time. And there's always that, you know, it's just not the same as it was, you know, previously, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but you go through these transitions of like, these, there's people that are part of the old guard, and it changes to the you know the, these new things happen, and the old guard goes, God, it just wasn't like it used to be, and you, and you see, uh, you know this you know this uh, transformation, and uh, and what I have experienced is that it's just really hard to continue to to create that people first uh, culture, and and uh, and and it's and it goes, and I'm sure you're going to elaborate on this. I hope you do it's more than just snacks in the office and ping pong tables. So if, if you would please elaborate further on how you can maintain a people first culture uh, for our listeners that are like, Hey, I'm going to go from 10 to 80 people. How do you systemize, systematize that,
0: Jared? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, the first, the foundation of it all is authenticity. Um, you know, the founder's, you know, developed their eight core values. We live and breathe those core values. Um, but I would say in order to scale it, you know, the number one thing you had to do is find a way to measure it, right? And so we came up with this thing called ENPS. And it, it's an employee net promoter score, which is basically mm-hmm. a survey. Mm-hmm. And the question is, would you recommend to us as a place to work to your friends and family, right? Mm-hmm. We have asked that question of every single employee in the company, every single quarter since 2014, and as a management team, we measure ourselves based on the employee net promoter score. Um, we measure the health of the business as to how well our employees feel about what they're doing, and then we use the verbatim results. That, you know, we ask a bunch of questions underneath that: How are you feeling about your manager? How are you feeling about your environment? What is it that makes you motivated to work every day? What problem mm-hmm. And then we take those responses and we come up every single quarter as a leadership team with new goals for the, for a people goal for the next quarter. And sometimes it's global and sometimes it's local. For example, this past quarter, it was, uh, we set a goal of vaccinating, I think it was 10,000 employees in, um, in the third quarter and we ended up doing 13,000 vaccinations, which is a big deal in the Philippines and India a big, big, big deal. Right. Um, and, you know, just stuff like that. It, it's amazing how uh, people will respond when they know you're listening. And then when they see you take action, we're not perfect. We, you know, we don't, we don't crush every goal. And, you know, uh, we, we probably don't make all the best decisions, but there's an authenticity and a transparency. And like, at least we're asking the question, we're looking at the results and then we break it down. Like we actually look at are there certain clients where the employees are just not happy working at that client? And what can we do is, is the, is the inside sales team higher or lower than, you know, the rest of the sales team, is there something more we can do? And so, and then you just build that discipline into the whole organization down, you know, to the first line manager. Um, you know, so that's, that's been huge. The other thing, um, which really kind of changed my entire leadership style, um, The the CEO, Bryce, started, when I joined TASCA, started every staff meeting with core value nominations, and there were certain rules around it. It was like you had to nominate somebody normally not in the room and normally not in your department for representing a core value of the company. And so, for example, I might say, hey, I'm I'm nominating Jasper today for teamwork makes the dream work he took uh, the initiative to reach out to this prospect and get a meeting. And now, you know, we're working on a legit opportunity, you know, teamwork makes a dream work to Jasper. And what it did right. Was every single meeting you started with positivity, which is so hippie, right? Like,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it also made you present. Right. So it was like, it's like this great tone setting. And then Bryce every single week sends out the email to the person, whoever it is in the organization, yeah. And he and he, they get a direct note from the CEO. It's not a pride. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Not only they get yeah. a note from the CEO. And I what I, I liked it so much. I started doing it in my staff meetings and then people started to do it in their staff meetings. And now, like, you just have these core value note emails flying around the, the company every week. You were nominated on my call. You were nominated in this thing. I mean, talk about like, yeah, flywheel effect. Right.
3: Yeah, um, that's very cool.
0: And then the other thing I'll tell you, just can't, can't get past this. Um, we are hyper-focused on total compensation. Um, we have a higher level of equity participation in this company, we think, than any of our, uh, than any of our peers. Um, we care about um, the, total, the total employee and wellness. Um, we have wellness resources, resiliency resources, counselors on staff. Um, we think we have the best in class benefits program in every market in which we operate. Um, we paid out, I think, at the IPO, 140 plus million dollars of bonuses, IPO bonuses. And and we paid an IPO bonus to every single employee who had been with us um, for at least a year. And anybody who stayed and hit their one year would, would get it as well. So basically, everybody employed at the time of the IPO. Yeah, um, great. You know so it wasn't just about returning money to the private equity shareholders, it wasn't just about all of us senior leaders who had obviously you know significant equity positions. You know, it was about taking it was about you know recognizing everybody in the accomplishments. It was really a very powerful, humbling, meaningful moment for all of us.
1: How many employees were uh do you have to have at the company to become a chief commercial officer? When does that title come into effect?
0: <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's funny that. Uh, it's a funny story. I'll give you the short version. I was in a, a senior leadership team meeting all of the C-suite together. We had an executive facilitator come in and Bryce designed his org chart for the next year up on the wall. And one of the guys in the room who was running account management, basically a customer success function, looked at him and said, there's no way that's going to work. Way too many direct reports. Mm-hmm. We went through a brainstorming exercise. I'm not kidding. I got promoted in the room with no discussion about compensation and everybody was like, everybody was like, uh, what, what do we think we need? Maybe we need like a chief customer officer. And then what would report to that person? Well, maybe we should put marketing, sales, client services, my peer consulting. Put that oh, my peers are in the room, right? And then we, I walk out of the room and, and basically they're like, well, why isn't Jared doing that role now?
3: Ah, uh, that's great.
0: I, I was like, yeah, so I got the... I didn't. I wasn't very good negotiator on my comp package because I had already taken the job.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely awesome. So, was
1: revenue operations part of that, or when did RevOps come into play in your growth from seventy to seven hundred million?
0: Yeah, I essentially have lead to cash. Um, You know, I certainly. You know, finance and operations have a big role to play in making sure we can count things correctly and get them in place, but my teams are uh, accountable for everything from lead to, you know, billing, invoicing collection. Um, And, you know, we look at that whole, you know, many of us as, as sales leaders or, or in SaaS companies, you, you think about, okay, opportunity management, stage one to close. Okay. And then we got customer success and then we got, okay, we got lead management and marketing. We we've adopted a very modern philosophy of trying to look at that entire journey from lead to cash all the friction points, all the survey places we can, you know, try to understand where we're doing well and where we're struggling. Um, and it comes from a perspective of the customer journey, right? I mean, that's what we were trying to do. Um, and I, so I just, you know, a lot of my clients with the fact that all my people are essentially the marketing client facing roles, you know, we play that, that interface, although we obviously have lots of support people behind us.
3: Do you guys eat your own dog food? In other words, when you're building you know when you're going after new clients, you have an entire like in other words do you out does task us outsource certain things to your own outsource teams where you know you want to build lists or drop cold emails or uh, or or do sales operations or revOps types of functions do you, yeah. do you all eat your own
0: dog food yeah we, we very much do um, probably you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? When I joined in 2016, I had two salespeople, one BDR, like inside sales, kind of cold collar. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had some, like a proposal, a couple of proposal people in the Philippines that were doing, they were helping us with uh, proposal responses. The the reason they were in the Philippines because at the time that was the only country we had and they were really good at the site visits. Like they were really good at like, you know, know, when a client wants to come see the site, we'll walk them through and we'll do graphics and we'll make it look like their home and all this stuff. And we were spending a million dollars with an outsourced, (laughs) outsourced, like a, like a marketing agency. Yeah. And I said to myself, I I need that million bucks. I, I need that million bucks to do other stuff. So I looked at my leader in the Philippines, Victoria, and I said, um, you think you could do everything that is doing? You think you can get the creative talent? Can you build me a research team? Can you can you hire writers? And I literally took the million bucks and gave her like half a million of it and then used another couple hundred thousand for tool enhancements and then used another couple hundred thousand to hire more inside salespeople to get the engine going. So we have now arguably the most robust and high performance um you know, sort of demand gen function and proposal support function I have ever had. And it's at probably a third of the cost of what I what I used to do when I did it all domestically.
3: You you said that there is, you know, the old school way of thinking about outsourcing was to uh, reduce costs or eliminate cost. And you said the new way is is basically saying like, look, this is access to global talent or building on a skill that we don't, you know, that we don't know how to do and we can get going quickly. Um, as the chief, you know, customer officer, do you actually make it a criteria where if the customer just wants to reduce cost, that it's not really a good fit for your your business or is that okay too?
0: Yeah, we, we really do. Um, and there's a couple of things behind it. we, we 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 cost probably five to ten points more than market in any in any country the person doing the work is in, and that's because we have a slightly a higher margin tolerance, but we have better total benefits package. You know, just a point or two. Now we argue we get that back through retaining good talent. We don't have to retrain. We don't have to re-recruit. Keep performance high. So we we think there's an ROI there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you're coming to us and you want you know rock bottom pricing you're not that that's not what we're here for right you're and luckily most of the tech companies we work with are value buyers they're they're getting enough cost savings just by taking advantage of some of the labor arbitrage right not doing not having to be even in latin america or europe or us but being in asia or or you know wherever so we get to them and we say, look, what talent do you really need? What skills mm-hmm. are you required? And let us coach you on where that work can be done at a high level. Um, one advantage we have is in these markets, you know, outsourcing or services companies, that's a career. A call center in the United States is not a career for most people. It is a job, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got probably 60% of our frontline uh, in, in Asia, with college degrees. Um, you know, obviously you take advantage of the labor economics and stuff, but yeah, they're not coming to us for cheapest. And and that's, it also keeps the bad clients out, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. We have a little price sensitivity on our side and, and it keeps a lot of those high maintenance, low, uh, low yield customers out of the fold.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I it, that, that occurred to me because when you guys went public, I read the S one and I noticed that you have about a hundred customers. And, and, and I thought, you know, you have, to, you must be, and you know, $700 million, like you do the math. Okay. Like you must be very selective through your sales process to make sure that the client is right for you, as opposed to just any client that needs outsourcing services. Yeah. Come on board and you're rolling the dice. You know, you, you uh, I I'd imagine that you have to, you have to be selective, or is it just that competitive? I don't know.
0: And I'll tell you a, uh... Tell you a great sales story from 2017. I had been in board like six months and I was kind of yet to hit a big deal. Um, I signed up for a pretty big number at the time. I remember really as we were a $70 million business when I joined, I signed up for 60 million in annual contract value signed. So I was trying to double the business with new signings in my first year.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: First two quarters went okay. We're in the third quarter, we got this $5 million deal. I mean, this is a big deal to help us hit the number, right? And it was probably five or six million, probably like the biggest deal the company was going to sign like in, with one stroke of a pen at the time. Um, financials look good, client wanted the deal, you know, margins are good, revenues is good. Um, there was an incident on the site visit where the client said some derogatory remarks to a female on our leadership team. And the founders looked at me and said, we don't need that deal. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait a minute. We're not, we're not not doing the deal because we can't do the work. We're not not doing the deal because it's too big or too small. We're not doing it because it's you know got bad margins. We're, we're gonna have, well, hold on. We're gonna have ethical character. <laughs> <laughs> imagine that but i mean seriously i mean you know by the way like i said i love the culture at IBM, but it was an aggressive sales culture I mean, it was like go get the deal done right i had, i have never had a leader look at me and say it's okay we'll go get the next one that's awesome uh, well, boy, what would you do to
2: the rep i mean the rep who sold oh, that deal, i mean you know you look had to league. have paid him, right oh, where rest- is he working now
0: <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or he quit. The the
0: good news was that particular deal was done by a rep who was very core value aligned, long time, you know, one of the first early employees, and he got it. Um
2: did he get paid though? He got it, but did he get paid? We did not pay him on the deal. Oh my gosh.
0: I know. I know. But you know, one one nice thing here is we have we have such a high velocity. Deal cycles are relatively short compared to industry. And because we attack a little bit more of a mid-market sale, we'll take a lot of startup and growth stage companies. It's not, it's the deal velocity here is really high. So, you know, we can, we can get away with saying, look, we got to pass on that one. Let's go get the next one. Right. Um, hard to believe. Right?
2: I just had a curiosity. You started with like, you said, two reps and a couple of BDRs. How many reps do you have now at the company?
0: Roughly. I mean, there's there's probably 25 quota carrying new logo people okay um, they're in they're in vertical pods where you've got a vp who runs this like called fintech and then you've got like a director and, and like kind of junior people who are doing more small single and double size deals um, and then i've got about 110 customer success managers but they all carry quota for revenue growth and signings growth so i'm managing roughly a team of 110 25 to 50, um, you know, quota carrying. And then there's inside salespeople that are all about pipe gen. So there's about, I think 10 of those.
2: And how, has how COVID had you pivot running that group?
0: You know, interesting. Um, I would say COVID on the whole was probably an accelerant for us. Um, we certainly saw some temporary declines, like a lot of our micro mobility, like scooter, scooter businesses, event ticketing, <laughs> Even Uber, right? I mentioned Uber as a large client. You know, there were no Ubers on the road, right? So we were doing Uber Eats, but Uber Transport was just gone, right? Um, so it was temporary. And then what we found was because so many of our clients were online businesses, um, food delivery, digital banks, it's media streaming, we had a couple of the big streaming platforms which just went bonkers. Food delivery was like the best free advertising for food delivery, you know, ever. Um, they went bonkers and then, you know, basically digital businesses, which is our core focus, um, accelerated. So we've had, we've had a phenomenal time. I would say the sales team got more productive because we weren't spending so much time on planes. We weren't spending so much time, um, you know, on the road, so to speak. But then over time, you see some of the old things don't work anymore, um, events used to be a huge way for us to connect with people develop relationships and we could do it at scale a couple times a year we've had to pivot to micro networking stuff um, different ways to get real relationship access and develop trust um, so that's been harder I, but overall i would tell you that my sales team is probably more productive today than it was pre covid
2: what about with the great resignation going on what what have you experienced from keeping sales people and, and hiring?
0: Um, Everyone's
2: experiencing problems there,
0: but. Yeah, you know, I, I gotta be honest. I think this comes back to the culture. Um, we don't have a huge uh, voluntary attrition problem. If anything, my biggest challenge has been we're growing up, right? So I can talk all day long about how great the culture is and it is great, but we're now we're 700 million ish this year, whatever is the publicly stated number, Um you know, there's just layers and bureaucracy, and there's people yeah. like you know what I loved us when we were a hundred million. That was fun, you know, and that's where they need to be. So that's okay. Um, and 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 at the same time, we're bringing in talent now that is going to help us get to whatever you know a billion, two billion, and that's different talent. So we don't we don't have a real huge attrition problem. Um, but I but I will tell you, just having. 5,000 ish for 4,500 ish uh, frontline employees in the U S this inflation uh, wage pressure, labor dynamics. It is for real. It is yeah. absolutely for real. I mean, we're competing, we're competing for, you know, operations center jobs with 21 bucks an hour at Starbucks down the street. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good job. <laughs> right? So it's uh, it's for real in the U S for sure. Yeah.
2: So your margins are probably suffering from that right now, while you're trying to with with your old clients or not old clients, but the clients that signed on maybe a year ago or before. Yeah, how are you going back and getting price increases to them? Or they understand because everyone's got to understand inflation, right?
0: Yeah, luckily our contracts have the majority of our contracts have cost of living adjustment provisions in them tied to consumer price index or whatever. Gotcha. Um, so we might have temporary hits, you know, while we wait for that kind of anniversary date or something to come up. But I will say, um, another great thing when, when you've sold the whole business on the value of the frontline employee, right. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get you great talent. We're going to retain great talent. When you go have a conversation with a customer today that, Hey, um, we've got some labor dynamics that are hurting in order to get you the right talent, keep attrition low, deliver performance for you. We may need to consider this they're absolutely open to that discussion. And then we get creative too, right? Their budget initially change. So we go, hey, let's go, maybe we should move this work offshore, save a little money there, and then do this onshore and optimize for you. So, you know, they've been open to the discussion. I think it helps that it's all over the headlines too.
2: Yeah, I think, I think with every day you hear about inflation, it's gotta help when you go, hey, we need to increase prices. They're not gonna be yeah. caught off guard going, oh. Yeah. But like, we knew this was coming.
1: Yeah, for sure. I ask this question on every show, real quick. Do you, do you think pay at risk will go away, and we're eventually just going to pay everybody a full salary, and we're going to we're going to make uh, performance uh, mandatory, not uh, arbitrary?
0: You know, um, it's funny that you say that. But the, uh, our front line, we we try really hard to get away from metric based incentive pay because what we find is that at scale, it creates a lot of manipulation and poor behavior. And then all of a sudden you introduce a small percentage of ethical issues. And so we, we move to things like team-based rewards. Um, we do things like big uh, like experiences and trips and things like that instead of cash. Um, and it tends to create more goodwill, tends to be more positive when, and, 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 and you, know, you avoid some of the downsides. Uh, I have not moved that way in my organization. Um, but I can, I can see that day. Um, it's, it's really hard when you're talking about the deal sizes, you know, you're doing services, you're talking multi-million dollar annual contracts, which, which could have, you know, 10 plus 20 plus million dollar life cycles, you know, to get the best talent. As long as one person's out there paying, you know, I'll give you 1% of the deal or 2% of the deal. As long as one company's out there doing that really hard for the rest of us to try to migrate away. Um. But you know, I think over time that we will, we probably should want to see the world evolve that way a little bit.
2: What about your uh, tech stack? Do you have any um, anything? Uh, we ask this a lot of people, and it's usually the same. Your 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 tech stack for for sales and all of that. What, yeah, what do you I mean, have in there?
0: Yeah, I um, I doubled down on Salesforce. Um, back in 2016, uh, when I got here, it was like it was, I mean. I had worked at IBM and Xerox, right? Mm-hmm. And first of all, I was like, G-Suite. <laughs> <laughs> it's a learning <laughs> curve, isn't it? That is G-Suite, right? Um, and uh, they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I asked for a Microsoft Surface. I thought it was so cool. Like, give me a Surface. And they're like, wow, I don't know why I don't have a Mac. Anyway, um, huh. and it was, I felt like we had a SaaS tool for everything. I mean, everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. different logins and all this crazy stuff. And... I, we were spending more money than we needed to, ironically. And, you, know, you don't think about ah, 50 grand for this tool here, 40 grand for this tool here. I was convinced on a user-based licensing model from Salesforce, I could actually consolidate all the tool sets, double down on Salesforce, bring in Pardot for campaign management. And I actually got us, I believe, more functionality, um, lower cost, and greater integration of data across the enterprise. Um, and at $70 million, that was really, really important to me. The, the other thing, I mean, I knew how to implement my business processes in sales. You know,
3: yeah, there you go. I knew,
0: I knew exactly what I wanted. And at the, at the early stage, yeah. it's all about the business process. I don't care. I mean, to some degree, I don't care what tools you use. I have certain yeah. preferences and whatever, but if you can't get the whole company to understand the business process, then you can't, yeah. then you can't, you can't, you have no visibility on the business as it starts to scale. Um, yeah, you know, I was super fortunate that that all worked for me. And I got here early enough where I didn't have to rip a ton out. And, you know, yeah. I had to retrain two salespeople in one market. Right? Yeah. yeah, uh, you know, certainly, um, you know, we, we ended up, uh, we ended up bolting in sales loft to do, um, some of the outbound BDR stuff because in, in this, I was kind of against cause I, I just like the integration, but the team believed that that was more efficient. They showed me some examples of why that, that, that could work on top. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of the core CRM, you know, so I, I let them do that. I, I certainly think there's opportunities for some, you know, advanced marketing tool sets on top of the campaign management, lead, lead management platform. Um, and we've gotten really cool now with some of these event, you know, virtual event platforms and how we do things there. So, uh, you know, we've used just about everything now. Zoom is a client. So we use some of their event stuff we've used on 24 for virtual yeah. events. Um, I'm a big fan of Marketo. I'm just not a B2C business. And, you know, my market's not that big, so it's just not really necessary. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think
2: anything, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but anything like, in my opinion, Salesforce, everyone uses Salesforce. I mean, not everyone, but let's just say they have a monopoly on C- sales CRM, yeah. but anything that's native to Salesforce to me is an add-on that I'm willing to talk about, but anything it's where I bio. have to log in somewhere else, it's, it's mind-boggling that th- those even exist nowadays.
0: You want my best, want my best secret?
2: Mm. All
0: right. So a guy on my team, Sean Neighbors, who runs our largest client, um, stumbled on this tool called Demand Farm, which is in the Salesforce App Exchange, um, And it is the most robust, integrated strategic account planning tool hmm. I have ever seen. Hmm. Um, I... I I know this pretty well because I used to run, you know, multi hundred million dollar clients at IBM. And I thought their signature sales methodology for strategic account planning was phenomenal. Right. But it was all static. It was all word docs and and all this stuff. So I've been trying my career to sort of recreate it in a more online and digital way. And then all of a sudden we stumbled on these guys at Demand Farm Um, and it's completely changed the way we think about. Wow strategic account planning and large account penetration. So if you're going after Google and you're trying to map the organization and, and measure your touch points and integrate your pipeline data with your product data, with your white space data, with it, it's, it's wow.
3: unbelievable. Wow. Wow. Well, that's, a, that you, is a nice pro tip.
2: How do you handle uh, forecasting? Right. That's always the bane of everyone's existence yeah, when so- it comes to sales management is such a way a time suck. What are you Anything? Yeah.
0: I have, um, I would call it a a proprietary methodology for doing that. Um, It's based on a standard Salesforce um, stage methodology, stage yield, right? So, um, you know, all sales stages and then we have historically, uh, uh, you know, percent yield for every opportunity in every stage. But I'm a big believer in urgency and accountability. It doesn't matter to me that I'm going to win 30% of my stage three deals. What matters to me is how many can I get done this quarter, right? What people often forget in forecasting is the likelihood the deal will actually close on the timeline. The sales exec says it's going to close. Mm -hmm. So how do you judge the accuracy of the close date, not whether you're going to win or lose, but how many can you get done in the quarter. So I use the method. I use every deal with a close date in the quarter that is in proposal stage or higher as the baseline. We call that the level one, which is these are all the deals in the universe today that could close according to the rep in this quarter. And then we we manually forecast through leadership transactions that are. I, I tell the team. 50% odds are greater. The reality is they bring me 70% odds are greater. Um, and so, you know, we sort of use the tools and the data, but then I force manual accountability. And then when the deal rolls, I have somebody's name I can call on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You, you forecast. That. I didn't forecast that deal. You forecast that deal. And so how do we get that done? Right. You know, maybe next time you could put a realistic close date on and think about the steps. steps, (laughs) You think about what you did. Always (laughs) deliver. Young man.
2: (laughs) Every sales manager out there always deliver what you say you're going to deliver.
0: Yeah. Try not to
2: go too much more, but definitely do not go
0: less. You know, one of the things unique about my career is I was a sales operations manager for the retail uh, and distribution business at IBM. Which was about four billion Mm dollars and so i used to have to do the sales forecast to tell the manufacturing divisions how many servers do i need this quarter how many storage units you know whatever do i you know whatever it is the physical manufacturing and in that world the macro number theory works it's so big four billion dollars and whatever and you can say well i've got you know 300 million in pipeline stage three or better i normally yield 30 percent that works it, unless you're IBM, I don't know that that really works. <laughs> right. You know, uh, IBM can do that for, you know, manufacturing forecasting. Um, but in our world, you know, it's closest to the pin, right? I mean, I got mm-hmm. to know, know what I'm really going to put up so that then we can go hire the people on the front line to go do the work. Um, and I can deliver an accurate revenue number. So, uh, you know, I sort of have what I would call a hybrid. I, I, I lose all that stuff I learned from IBM on the macro economic theory. And then I really love this, the personal accountability. And then we look at that every single week. Every single week, every rep with a forecast deal has to be accountable to me on Thursday afternoons and tell me the status of the deal. Yep.
3: Love it.
1: Last question. What's the one thing you wish you would have known before you uh, went from 70 million to 700 million, Jared?
0: First of all, I wish I would have known how good it was going to feel to ring the bell at NASDAQ. It was like the freaking Super Bowl. Like, I mean, I I felt like I was eight years old. Uh, You know, it was, it was on Christmas morning or something. It was unbelievable. Um, I think, I think the thing that's been the hardest for me is, you know, I built it all myself, right? Like, so I, I mean, so like, I know it, like, like I know it at a level that I probably shouldn't. Um, And I've kind of like, I've kind of done every job or mentored every job. Um, And so the hard part for me is being able to let go enough, not not to micromanage and let my team run their businesses. And now I got to focus more on what is the next? What is the strategy? How does this scale? Because just simply doing what we did before and trying to do 50% 50% more of it is like really freaking hard. So I spend my time now thinking about like, what's the next lever? What's the next service? What's the next market? What's the next geography so that I can create more opportunity for the field teams um, to help them make the number. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, my job is to try to make them as successful as possible, enable them to be as successful as possible. So that's, you know, that's probably been the hardest pivot
3: because I got, right. here by,
0: I got here by, You know, cranking on the number and personally getting involved in deals and negotiating limits liability agreements, and you know, I'm like, I'm like, that's not my job anymore. Yeah,
3: well,
1: it's like it's it's a catch twenty two in leadership. Uh, you, You build up a system that can run without you, and if it can run without you, they don't need you anymore, and you're replaced by somebody cheaper. (laughs)
3: Well, if you, if you can't pivot though, to be strategic and that's Jared's lesson, right? Like if you, you know, Jared, you know, and I faced this at ZipRecruiter when I got to SVP of sales and I had tons of resources and just like you, I had done the job and I mentored the job and, and I knew stuff that I probably shouldn't know. Like the way you're telling that story. Absolutely. And the, and the challenge you face now is a little bit of letting go, which is hard. It's really hard because by, you know, by hook or by crook, you've made, you've really, really made this business and, and you're dealing with smaller numbers of clients and deals that you're looking at. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Like that is like learning how to let go. So uh, good luck to you. <laughs> good luck to you. <laughs> the, next,
0: the, next big well, challenge, the next big challenge I'm interested in is we went from 70 to 700, by the way, 100% organically, not one acquisition. To make that happen, very unusual. That's crazy. In five years, right? So, so
1: so you're saying you're hiring a biz dev guy now? (laughs) Well, corp dev,
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think the next challenge will be: could we buy a business and I could integrate it to to this model that I've built from scratch? You know, it'll be really interesting to see. Does that help us evolve? Is that harder than I think? Um, I'm excited for that challenge.
1: Well, Jared, we thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Oh, I can't thank you guys enough for having me. Um, you're a lot nicer than sassholes implies.
1: <laughs> no, well, you, you don't know anything
0: yet. <laughs> wait till we edit
1: <laughs> Wait till we edit the show. <laughs> what, what's what's the best way for listeners to learn more about your connect LinkedIn?
0: Yeah. I mean, absolutely connect with me on LinkedIn, Jared, J A R R O D. That's the, that's the tricky one. Um, and then, um, Know, learn more about us at taskus.com dot com. it's a phenomenal story and we're just getting started
1: outstanding we're going to find that video of you ringing the bell oh it's greatest thanks for listening to the sass oh yes
2: yeah thanks thanks a lot it was an enjoyable conversation
3: thank you jared
1: Oh, that's going to work so well. Thanks for listening to the Sassholes. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. And we please ask you to give us five stars in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our podcast uh, update, email. Become a true Sasshole by supporting us at Patreon slash Sassholes. We thank you for listening. Cue the music. Kevin What's, up, Gaither. What's
3: up, boys? Happy holidays.
1: Yeah, happy, happy. Speaking of happy, look at Carney. He looks refreshed. Looks like he's been at a spa. Oh, yeah.
2: All right. I'm trying to rent an empty room at this convent across the street for me to be my office so I don't have to worry about kids walking around.
3: You live near a convent?
2: I live right across the street from my kid's school, which is called St. Edward's School. And they have a big church, a big rectory, and they have this huge convent that's like the Overlook Hotel that's been empty, and they've done all this work on it to rent it out to religious groups and stuff like that. And I'm like, can you just give me like one little bedroom over there, and I'll just work there. It's, It's literally like 20 feet from my house would be ideal. Why
3: won't they do, well, will they do it? Why are they give me? I shit? don't know why.
2: I think he's worried a little bit about his church. I said, "Dude, I'll sign off anything, and then I'll pay two hundred bucks a month, and we, I can even set it up so it's different than my weekly church donation. I can set up a split
1: is Not gonna mess up your write-off for your uh, home office. No, it'll be better
2: for me. It looks like a donation. All right. It doesn't look like rent. It won't be <laughs> seen as rent. And I'm I'm covered anyways because I'm a Christian. So if something happens, I'm covered.
1: Well, God will cover you, right? Or,
3: God will cover you, yeah.
1: Or is it Buddha? What do you got over there? God. Oh, that's right. You're
3: Irish. You guys are all uh, all in the same uh, same time zone over there, by the way. I'm, all, I'm the only West Coaster. That's right.
1: You got all the pop-up times behind you. But, Jared, okay. do you know, uh, uh, can you do the intro? It's pretty hard. Hi, this is Jared Johnson. You're listening to Sassholes. However you want to do it, we'll use
3: it at the beginning of the show.
0: Okay. You want me yep. That right
3: now? Yep. Yeah. We're we're recording right now, so uh, uh, let's uh, let's give it a rip. Add get, add some pizzazz to it if you like too.